A number of years ago, I came across this article called Facebook in a Crowd. And it was written by a Canadian, Hal Niesviecki, I think is how you say his name. And he talks about how he wanted to get all his Facebook friends together. And this is what he said. One day this past summer, I logged on to Facebook and realized I was very close to having 700 online friends. Not bad, I thought to myself, absurdly proud of how many cyber pals, connections, acquaintances, and even strangers I'd managed to sign up. So I decided to have a Facebook party. I used Facebook to create an event and invite my digital chums. Facebook gives the option of RSVPing in three categories, attending, maybe attending, and not attending. After a week, the responses stopped coming in and were ready to be tabulated. 15 people said that they were attending. 60 said maybe. A few hundred said not, and the rest just ignored the invitation altogether. I figured that about 20 people would show up. That sounded pretty good to me. 20 potential new friends. On the evening in question, I took a shower. I shaved. I splashed on my tingly man perfume. I put on new pants and a favorite shirt. Brimming with optimism, I headed over to the neighborhood watering hole and waited. And waited. And waited. Eventually, one person showed up. I chatted with my new potential friend, Paula, doing my best to pretend I wasn't dismayed and embarrassed, but I was too self-conscious to be genuine. I kept apologizing for the lack of attendance. I looked over my shoulder every time the door opened and someone new came in. Paula was nice about it, assuring me that probably uh, people just felt shy about the idea of making new friends. She said she herself had almost decided not to come. And now you have me all to myself, I said trying to sound beneficent and unworried. We smiled at each other awkwardly. We made small talk. Eventually, we ran out of things to say. Anyway, she had to work in the morning. And after she left, I renewed my vigil, waiting for someone new. It was getting on 11 o'clock in all my rationalizations, for example, that people needed to get home from work, eat dinner, relax a bit, were wearing out. I would learn when I asked some people who didn't show up the next day that definitely attending on Facebook meant maybe. And maybe attending meant likely not. So I probably shouldn't have taken it personally, but the combination of alcohol and solitude turned my thoughts to self-pity. Was I really that big of a loser? Or was it that no one wants to get together in real life anymore? People want to hang out with you, I assured myself, so uh, they just don't have the time to do so. By now, it was nearing midnight. My head was clouded by drink, and it finally started to sink in. No one else was coming. I ordered one more drink. I raised my glass in a solitary toast and promised myself I'd spend less time online. Then I took a gulp. The beer was delicious, but bittersweet. 700 friends, and I was drinking alone. I find that article to be a fascinating commentary about the way that we think about relationships and even friends in our modern world. It taps into the superficiality, I think, that we can sometimes feel in knowing lots of people, but also feeling relatively unknown. What if we were to take this article titled Facebook in a Crowd and change it and put the title Me in a Crowd? How would you think about your friendships in this world? Does it ever feel like, despite all the people that you know, that no one wants to get together in real life anymore? I mean, to pursue friendship? Does it feel like just sometimes we're just going it alone? 
If you spent any time in Bryan College Station in a place that Forbes says has around 250,000 people now, we have 68,000 people up on campus. Sociologists use the term called crowded loneliness. That is, we have people all around us, but somehow we feel so disconnected, so so unknown, so by ourselves. What is it about this place that lends itself so easily to being surrounded by people, to even being one of the crowd, and yet still being alone? The question is, is how is that possible? Surely it's not supposed to be that way. All of us long for, for things to be different, for, for our lives to be filled with deep and rich friendships. And, and maybe you're one of those people who, who you're like, I have so many people in my life, I just don't have time for all the people that, that want to get together with me. And, and if that's the case with you, I say that that's great. But I still want to ask the question, how many of those people would you say are your friends? People who know you, not just things about you. Today is, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, a day that many churches around the world observe as a day of Pentecost. This refers to the day when Jesus launched his message and his movement into the world. Having lived and having taught, having gone to Jerusalem and was crucified and having risen again from the dead, Jesus now, 50 days later, sends his disciples out into the world with his message and with his movement. And the question I want us to entertain today is, what should that movement look like? And we're going to go back to the foundational passage in Acts chapter 2. Acts is, of course, the the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's part two where Jesus talks about what Jesus continues to do in and through his people. So I want us to to read through this passage. It's going to be a little bit more lengthy, but I want us to see the tie between the message of Jesus and the movement of Jesus. So we're going to be in Acts chapter two. If you haven't gotten there in your Bible already, go ahead and turn there or launch your app. I'm going to read it here on the screen as well. Acts chapter two, beginning at verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, the they they're referring to here is the disciples. They had seen Jesus. Jesus had been teaching them post-resurrection. After he had come back from the dead, he'd been gathering them together, giving them more teaching, but telling them to wait. He said that God's going to send his personal presence among them, and they will have power both to proclaim the message of Jesus and to be the movement of Jesus. And so the day of Pentecost has arrived. It's 50 days after Easter Sunday, and they're all together in one place. And we're told in verse 2, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me just pause here for a moment. We look at that and we're like, what is going on here? This, this is, sounds just very odd from the get-go. The disciples are there and, and suddenly the place where they're gathering is just filled with wind. Something crazy is going on here. And we're told that something like tongues of fire settled down on each of them. Now we look at that and we go, what is that all about? Well, for us, it's a little bit probably far removed because we're not instantly thinking about things that happened in the Old Testament. But the disciples then knew exactly what was going on. 
You see, in the history of the people of Israel, there's a time in which they built this glorious temple, which would be the meeting place between them and their God. And when it had been dedicated by Solomon, there was this great pillar of fire, just a gigantic tongue of fire that came and sat on this temple. And that was a, a picture of the glory of God coming to inhabit that place. And so now... The new temple of Jesus is emerging, the the church. And and now these tongues of fire are coming to rest upon them. And they begin to speak in other languages, in other tongues. And this is a way for the scriptures to indicate to us that all kinds of barriers are being broken down. Barriers like language. And so in verse 5 we're told, Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Jews had come here for one of the feasts of Israel. They had been in Israel, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem earlier because of the feast of Passover. And now they're back some 50 days later for another feast. And this was the feast of booths. So you have people from all over the known world who made a pilgrimage here. Verse 6, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. See, had all these different languages and dialects coming uh, from all over the world to Jerusalem. And there's this crazy thing happening in this gathering place. A rushing wind and tongues of fire and Galileans speaking in, in foreign languages. And this, of course, is provoking thoughts. Verse 7 tells us they were all amazed and astonished. Which, by the way, is one of Luke's favorite ways to describe the reaction people had to the ministry of Jesus. They are all amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That is, they should be speaking a particular dialect. But they're speaking in all kinds of languages. And they ask in verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So there's, there's this miraculous gift of speaking, but it was almost a gift of hearing as well. These people are hearing these disciples Proclaim the gospel of Jesus in their own language. Verse 12 tells us, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I mean, I think if we were there, we'd be asking the same question. What is going on and what does this mean? But others, of course, there's always going to be people mocking, right? (laughs) Who see through, right? But others mocked, said, they are filled with new wine. So you have this event going on, and it is crazy. It's it's, it's weird. It's, It's out of the ordinary. And people are saying, what does this mean? And other people are saying, they're drunk. That's what this means. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the 11, 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Let me pause there. This is the same Peter who promised Jesus that if everyone else deserted him, he would stay faithful. And of course, Jesus was arrested and Peter turned and ran the other direction. He, he, to his credit, he, he tried to be around and hear what was going on with the, the trial of Jesus, but as soon as people started identifying him as one of the disciples of Jesus, he denied it, even calling a curse down upon himself. And Jesus, after his resurrection, came back and he restored Peter. He said, Peter, do you love me? If so, then feed my sheep. So here's Peter, who's become, in a sense, the spokesman for the disciples. He stands there, he lifts up his voice, and he addresses the crowd. He says, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That is about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And so here Peter goes back in the history of his people, hundreds of years, and pulls out a prophecy by this prophet named Joel. This is what he said. In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here, Peter is saying, look, these guys aren't drunk. I know it might be easy to think that because you're hearing them say things that just are inconceivable in languages that you didn't think that they knew. But this is what has happened. God is giving his personal presence to these men who are speaking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's what's going on there. And the reason God is giving his spirit is so that everyone who hears the message of the gospel of Jesus can now put their trust in Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. But when they, um, excuse me, but when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, if, if this is what the scriptures were talking about, when God said he would pour out his spirit and a message would go forth and everyone who believes the message shall be saved, that is, brought, be brought back into relationship with God, then, then what should we do? And this is what Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What Peter says here, what you should do is repent. That is to turn, to turn to God through Jesus and, and be baptized. That baptism is the, the sign that God gave to his church to apply to people who were coming to faith in Jesus. It was, it was a picture of cleansing. So just as in Jesus, our sins are cleansed and forgiven, so there is this act, this ritual that can be applied to a person that pictures the cleansing of sin. So he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I mean, this is amazing. Jesus has been telling his disciples, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to send the Spirit of God upon you. You're going to be filled with power, and then you're going to proclaim my message, and you're going to be my movement. And so now, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, this power is pulled out, poured out upon the people of Jesus, and they proclaim the gospel. And that day, some 3,000 people 
were added to this movement of Jesus. Verse 42 tells us, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That was a long passage. But in that passage, we see Jesus launching his message through the movement of his people. And that group of people took on certain characteristics They were a certain way with one another. And we're going to look at that today. In our study, we're going to call today simply devoted to one another. And we're going to dial in on that verse in chapter 2, which talks about that being the case. Here's the big idea. The gospel of Jesus creates the community of Jesus. The good news about Jesus reconciles us to God the Father. And that same good news about Jesus places us within a family of people who are followers of Jesus. So the gospel of Jesus creates the community of Jesus. And this is what Luke wants us to make sure that we understand about them. He tells us in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want us to dial in on these words here. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. It'll be interesting to talk about these other things, and we will in due time. But here they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now think about this. When, when you think of someone who is devoted to something, what does that mean? And if you think of someone who is devoted to Aggie football, what does that look like? All right? They've drunk the Aggie Kool-Aid. Maybe they have season tickets. They go and tailgate. They read about recruiting. They celebrate with the team when they win, and they... They moan and (laughs) complain when the team loses. I mean, they're devoted to the team, right? All right? Think about devotion. And that's the word that's being used here. In fact, the Greek word means to keep close company with, to be intentionally engaged in something. And so we're told here that these early people who responded to the message of Jesus were in close company with the fellowship of Jesus' people. They were intentionally engaged in the fellowship of Jesus' people. That word fellowship, by the way, just simply means a shared life. Life together. The New English Bible puts it like this. They met constantly to hear the apostles teach and to share the common life. So I want us to think about this as people who are interested in what Jesus has to say, who are interested in the message of Jesus who believe that he is worth listening to. We're becoming convinced more and more that he's worth giving our lives to and he's worth following with everything we've got. So when we give our attention to Jesus and he forms us into a community of faith, what does that mean? I want to suggest just a couple points here. We're going to actually unpack this. Think of this message today as really the introduction to our whole series this summer. All right, there's going to be a lot of unpacking we need to do. But it means, at the very least, that they were moving toward one another in intentional relationship. It was a new community of faith that was being created by the message of Jesus. And they were devoted to one another, which means they were moving toward one another in intentional relationship. 
And I think this is, this is an interesting point for us. We live in a culture where lots of people go to church and they think about the church as just something that you do on a Sunday morning. You can go hear a sermon and hear some maybe inspirational music and the box is checked. And yet something else was going on with these early disciples. Yes, they got together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoting themselves to, to fellowship, to life together. The apostle John, one of Jesus' close friends, wrote to a group of Christians and he said this, that which we have seen and heard, we have proclaimed to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul, I'm sorry, John is saying here that Jesus brings us into relationship with God, in relationship to himself. We actually have fellowship with the creator of the universe and the savior of mankind. And I'm writing to you so that you can have fellowship with us as well. God is doing a new thing. He's creating, as it were, a new humanity. And so this humanity was marked by moving towards one another in intentional fellowship. But they also moved for one another in intentional sacrifice. I mean, we saw it there at the end of that passage. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. There's a new movement of Jesus being founded upon the good news of Jesus, who we're told, even though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, so that through him we might become rich. That doesn't mean financially we get the big windfall. That means we're brought into relationship with God. We're given all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And so that good news about Jesus had an effect on the people of Jesus. So that in this new community of faith that they were devoted to, they were saying, look, we are a big family. If you have a need, I want to meet that. How can I help? They would say things like, mi casa es tu casa. Actually, maybe they didn't use that language in particular, but they shared life together. They didn't want anyone, a part of this new family of faith, to be in need. And so they were willing to sacrifice and even to make themselves more poor so that others can be better off. And my friends, this early movement of Jesus just spread like wildfire. And it spread especially among the down and out, the outcasts, the losers, the poor, those who didn't have the, the leverage with power or, or money to, to make things happen. The Apostle Paul, who would later himself become a, a Christian, he was a, a persecutor of the church, was actually overseeing the, the first executions of Christians, met Jesus and had his life turned upside down, was commissioned by Jesus and he actually wrote about half of our New Testament. And he would write in a letter to the Galatian Christians these words. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Which was an ancient way of saying you're all heirs of God through faith. And he said, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. This new movement of Jesus just looked different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world might divide themselves up in these different categories, but not in the community of Jesus. They were all one. They were brothers and sisters. They were a family. And so to bottom line this for us, I just want to put it like this. We are designed to flourish as a part of a true community where we are devoted to one another. This was God's original intent for humanity in creation, to create a family of humanity that was devoted to one another and that were a certain way with one another. But that went all wrong. When we started living for ourselves, 
Instead of loving people and using things, we use people and love things. And everything goes crazy. And so Jesus is bringing back what the original intent of humanity was. To put it another way, we can maybe put it like this. What do you think about this? Our default, de- our default mode should be we instead of me. Our default mode by nature is me instead of we. We come into this world looking out for number one. But in Jesus, something happens. When he reconciles us to God, we become interested in the things that God is interested in. We want to be a part of a community of faith where we're known together as a family. And so, in a sense, our default mode gets reset to we instead of me. Now, my friends, I know that I'm speaking to a North American crowd. We are rugged individualists. We like being devoted to me over we. We, we tend to think of people in, in terms of how they can benefit us, maybe how they can help us advance in life. And so we, we tend to use people. And I want to say that if, if what Jesus is doing in creating a new humanity, a, a humanity in which it can be said they were devoted to one another, and a, and a long list of other one another's we're going to look at over this summer, then our default mode should be we instead of me. I was listening to a testimony of a pastor who had grown up in the Southern Baptist Church. He's actually now a pastor of, of a gigantic Southern Baptist Church in Atlanta. And he was talking about how growing up, he was the son of a pastor, and he just thought of Christianity as about all the things you're not supposed to do. So he thought growing up, his job was to stay away from all the wrong kinds of things. And so he didn't do this and he didn't do that. So he thought that he was a good Christian. And then one day he read the New Testament for himself, and all of a sudden he saw, wait a minute, that's not what Christianity is about. God is making people new, and he's creating new humanities all over this world who relate to one another differently. And so there's, there's a new way of being human that we're called to be in Christ Jesus. And that new humanity's default mode is we instead of me. So we're going to begin to unpack that this summer, but I just want to give a few points of implication and application for us as we get going. First of all, I want to challenge you to believe that true community is part of God's design for you. We're not meant to be alone in a crowd. We're not meant to go it alone, either in life or especially in the Christian life. So I want you to believe that true community It's something that you and I are designed for. And you and I, when we believe in Jesus, are redesigned for. So let me ask you just kind of a random question. What was God doing before the creation of the world? Have you ever stopped to think about that? What was God doing before he said, let there be light? It's interesting to to think about that. The scripture gives us some indications of exactly what God was up to. The Apostle John tells us one of the most distinct statements about who God is when he said that God is love. Before the creation of this world, God himself was loving. We ask ourselves the question, who was God loving (laughs) before the creation of the world if there was nothing to create? Well, maybe there were some angels, but is that what that's talking about? Before there was anything like this created world, and even before there were created entities like angels, 
sung about seraphim and cherubim in that hymn earlier. Before there's any of that, God himself is love, was love, and, and was loving. And when we think about what the scriptures teach us and in terms of what we should be thinking about God, it teaches us that God himself exists eternally in a community. It's mind-boggling <laughs> to get our heads around this, but the Bible tells us that there is one God who exists in three persons. There's not three gods, but one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from all eternity past, this fellowship, this family existed in a community of love where each one was for the other. I was thinking this last week of that phrase from the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. Well, that describes the Trinity perfectly. Each person of the Trinity completely for the other and for all of them together. And so there is this community of love. And that's, that's actually the foundation of this world. But here's the amazing thing. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does something amazing. The Holy Spirit unites people like you and me to Jesus. And we're actually brought into the fellowship of the, the Holy Trinity, as it's called. One of the favorite expressions for someone when they come to faith in Jesus is to be in Jesus, which is an interesting way of, of speaking. We don't normally think that way about humans, but our identity is so wrapped up with Jesus that we're said to be in him. And actually, the scriptures tell us that he is in us. And we are brought into this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we begin to, to taste this when we understand and experience what Jesus has done for us. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says in the book of Romans, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so my friends, when we ask the question, what was God doing before the creation of this world? God himself was in a community of love where one was for all and all was for one. And God, God's nature is just to overflow. And love's nature is to overflow. And so he created this world so that people like us could experience this love. And that's the way the design was from all eternity. And then it went horribly wrong, but Jesus brings us back into relationship and back into a fellowship. That's what John meant a while ago when he says, we want you to be in fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And so if God's love has been poured out in us, as Paul says here, through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us, just like it was given to those original disciples on the day of Pentecost, then we should be people who are marked by love. Jesus himself said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's, one of the, that's another of the one another commands we're going to look at this summer. But here Jesus says, if there's anything that's going to mark you as my people, it's got to be love. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples, that you're connected to me, that you love one another well. In other words, I want my movement to be a display for this world of a new way of being human, one that's marked by the sacrificial love that I've shown to you. There's a, a late Anglican minister by the name of, of John Stott, and he has a number of helpful writings, and I would commend everything he's written to you. But he says this in one of his books called The Contemporary Christian. He says, God's purpose, we say, is not merely to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to build a church, to create a new society, even a new humanity in which racial, national, social, and sexual barriers have been abolished. 
People searching for community, he says, ought to be pouring into our churches. For there are Christian communities all over the world where true, sacrificial, serving, supportive love is to be found. And where such love flourishes, I'm sorry, where such Christian love flourishes, he writes, its magnetism is almost irresistible. He says that God's design is not simply to bring people back into relationship with himself. Yes, that's part of it. But also to bring people together in relationship with one another so that they are with one another in a new way of being human. And if that marks communities of Jesus' followers, Stott says here, that magnetism is almost irresistible. And I've known lots of people through the years who've gotten around groups of Christians and they say things like, you know, I don't know if I can buy into everything that they're saying, but I tell you, these people love differently. I mean, this, I, I want to be around these people even though I don't believe that. Now, I know there's other so-called Christian communities where people are like, I want to be as far away from them as I can. <laughs> and that's, that's sad when that happens. And if, and if you've been in a situation where you've been around those kind of Christians, I just want to say I'm sorry. I know what that's like. That's not the way it's supposed to be. If what we're seeing in the scriptures here, if we're tracking with us, that means that what we ought to be as a community of faith is a family and a family that is together. Now, I've shared this with some of you before, but in our previous church in Canada that we helped start there, uh, we had this young girl named Phoebe. And she had a school project in which she was supposed to make this mural or this um, this uh, picture here of her family. And so on the front side of this, she had a picture of herself with her two brothers. And this is just an adorable young lady. And she talks a little bit about their family and what they're like. But then she flipped over the page and made another storyline about her extended family, her church family. And so she has a picture here of a campfire. She has a picture here of doing some crafts and playing games and a picture of one of her favorite ladies in the church and a picture of her friend, uh, Malin from Vietnam. And then she has a picture of me and Heather. And, um, and I'm going to dial in on this. Hopefully this comes out. I don't know how clear this is. But she says, I love Pastor John and Miss Heather. He loves me and teaches me the Bible. And so when I saw this, of course, my heart just melted. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I, I love that. But what I loved about it was not that she you know, put my name there. I love that she felt that her church was part of her family. And I want that for all of us. I want each of us to think about our community of faith as a family that we belong to. And yes, we have our family that we live with in our house, but we also have a family, an extended family that we gather together as we learn what it means to apprentice with Jesus in a new way of being human. So to put it another way, Mercy Hill Church is not so much an event to go to, but a community or a family to belong to. That's what we want to see take place here. We want to see God grow us both deeply and widely. But part of that growth has to be in being a family together where we're devoted. So that's our first point of application. The second point of application is this. We've got to rebel against the status quo. A community that's devoted to one another isn't going to just kind of happen where we can stand back and watch it happen. We've got to rebel against the, the status quo. And one of the ways we've got to rebel against the status quo is being so crazy busy. I mean, we can almost wear this as a name tag, right? Hi, my name is Crazy Busy. What's your name? Oh, you're Crazy Busy too. Huh, nice to meet you, Crazy Busy. That's just the world we live in, isn't it? I mean, there are so many things that call for our attention. 
And they can even be good things. The question is, do we have time for one of the best things? There's a survey that came out a couple weeks ago that said that the average person has just four hours and 26 minutes of free time per week. That's interesting, isn't it? I know some of you are like, if I had four hours and 26 minutes, that would be amazing. (laughs) And I hear you on that. But let me just ask ourselves the question. If our, if our lives are so filled with crazy busy that we can't carve out room to be devoted to one another, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we doing it wrong? That's a question I'm asking myself as well. I think living in the kind of society that we live in as well, we constantly need to be evaluating our priorities. You know, we all, we all want this Zen moment where everything is just in perfect balance, right? There's books written about how to find that perfect balance. Uh, let me tell you what I, my, my take on that. That's, that's just um, a fantasy. <laughs> I don't think there's ever this moment that you can get where everything is just in perfect balance. Oh, I know you can get away on a vacation and sit in a hammock with a cooler on the beach and just enjoy that and everything's fine. You're not having to worry about email and stuff like that. There are great moments like that, no doubt. But life is about priorities. Loving God and loving others. And so the question is, in our crazy busy lives, are we making room to be devoted to one another? For those of us who who follow Jesus, are we being a family together? Another part of the status quo is that we prize our, our privacy over people. And you know this is true of you. Let me just ask you this question. Okay, you're not expecting a delivery from Amazon or anyone else, all right? And your doorbell rings. What is your first instinct? <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Who is interrupting my private life, right? And you know, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, who could that be? Open the door and you don't recognize that person. They got a clipboard and you're like, oh, all right, we're already done, right? <laughs> but I wonder if we, we carry that kind of mindset across the board. You know, one of the great things about the, the message of Christianity that, that we get when we get clarity is that Christianity is about a personal relationship with God. And that is glorious news. But that doesn't mean that it's a private relationship. God has so orchestrated things that we're going to see over the course of this summer that you and I need one another to be able to grow in the Christian life. In fact, if you are a disciple of Jesus and you want to obey the commands in the New Testament, you can't do that by yourself. Because there are a bunch of one another commands. A a new way of being human together, life together, that Jesus intends for you and me. So we've got to rebel against that status quo. Uh, Just two more really quick. There's a status quo that we we prefer polite distance. Sometimes we mistake being friendly for being polite or polite for being friendly. We can keep people at an arm's distance, right? And because we're not being mean, we think we're being friendly. We need... We need to to push past that. We need to rebel against that status quo. And and here's another status quo. (laughs) People are messy. (laughs) That's not going to change, all right? I'm messy, you're messy. But we know that people are messy, so we withdraw. Most of us think, I've got enough problems of my own. (laughs) But we also think, even if we want to admit it, that, that if people really got to know me, maybe they wouldn't accept me. I mean, if they really knew some of the junk that I carry in my heart, they would reject me. My friends, here at Mercy Hill Church, we are a people who are messed up. 
If you're looking for a nice, clean, perfect church, this isn't it. I can guarantee you that. Because the guy up here leading and speaking is not you know, nice and clean and has everything in order. We are all more broken and sinful and rebellious than we often have the courage to admit. But here's the good news. In Jesus, we can experience more of the love and the grace and the acceptance of God the Father. And that's amazing news. And so the invitation with this community of faith is not to come in here with your little aerosol spray and make sure that everyone's clean. It's in a sense to you know, come join this mess as we join together in a journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. You remember that, that show, Cheers, right? I referred to it last week um, about Norm and some of the things he said there. But the theme song of this show, uh, I loved. And even before there was a time when you could fast forward through the, the bumper music at the beginning, I always loved listening to this song. The theme song goes, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. My friends, you and I might have some different things going on in life, but, but we're all human. And we're all struggling to make it through this life. And if you're a believer in Jesus, we're all trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this crazy, busy, messed up world. And Mercy Hill needs to be the kind of church where we can know one another's names. And I know that, you know, on a Sunday morning, when, especially when we have this place full, not everyone's traveling in and out, it's hard to get to know everybody's names. And maybe it's not realistic that in this room we could do that. But in smaller rooms or, or going out for coffee with someone new might be a great step in this direction. So I want to invite you to, to come back. <laughs> As we explore this series, and so come back like next Sunday, because we're going to actually dive off the diving board into the deep end. This is what we got laid out for us this summer. As we look through the New Testament and see Jesus' desire for his people, we're going to take some of these one another commands, and there's more of them than this, but we're going to unpack some of them. So we're going to look at what it means to love one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to welcome one another, to show hospitality to one another to forgive one another, to counsel one another, and to clothe ourselves with humility with one another. This is the kind of community that Jesus wants to see formed. Wherever his gospel goes, it, it collects people into communities that follow him, and they should be marked by certain things. And if we were marked by these, that would be a great community to be a part of, wouldn't it? So let me just ask you real quick, what, how do you think we're doing? We're about a year into this church plant, following Jesus together. How are we doing in terms of being the community of Jesus with one another? My take is we're, we're just scratching the surface. There, there's some, I know people come from different backgrounds and there's different experiences with churches. And I know, especially if you've been hurt in a church before, you, you're going to be really slow and, and that's all right. Others of us have been a part of a church for a long time and we're a part of this church now and helping form this community of faith. How are we doing? I think there's some good movements in that. But I think we're just scratching the surface. If everyone related to one another like this, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Some people might even say that's a, that's a taste of heaven on earth. And that's exactly what Jesus intends for a place like this to be. Join us in this journey of exploring a new way of being human as we seek to follow Jesus together. We need you. We need you to be a part of, of this family. 
we need you as, as you're able to help us to become this kind of community. It's not a perfect community, but it's the kind of community that I think can help us in our journey towards Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And there's a temptation for us to say, it's gotta be perfect or I'm not gonna be a part of it. When we do that, we come in and we actually end up making things a little bit worse. Why? Because we take our own imperfect selves and put it in that mix. In fact, Scott Saul said, membership in a local church means nothing more and nothing less than this. Joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that, through Jesus, embarks on a journey toward a better future together. My friends, that's the invitation. It's to join us in creating this kind of community together. Thank you.